Welcome to Reforming Slavics. My name is Nick, uh, and my co-host is Tom. Hey, what's up? Today we are talking about God dragging you, kicking and screaming into heaven. Or as uh, people affectionately refer to the part of Tulip that is called irresistible grace. Yeah, but is that even the right way of describing it? So, some background info in regards to the actual acronym TULIP. It was not, in fact, created by the perpetuators of Reformed theology. It was created by the Arminians who opposed Reformed theology. And so they created an acronym to have a basis point to go off of in refuting arguments that come from the Reformed position. And so TULIP, right, total depravity, and so forth, when we jump to Irresistible Grace— those were coined by people who were opposed to the theology they were trying to define. But as as it tends to happen a lot of times in the Christian community, the things that are meant as insults are a lot of times taken and turned into points of um, like joy or points of pride, like we are actually this. And that's what the Reformed community did. And so to better define irresistible grace, we would probably change it to effectual grace. Yeah, because irresistible grace doesn't mean like no, it doesn't mean that everybody doesn't resist the grace of God. Yeah, because God, because because there are people in hell, it is in fact evident that God's grace can be resisted by by the evidence that people do end up in hell without His grace, because His grace is the thing that provides saving faith in order to redeem and save us. So, what would be a Better definition. Effectual grace is grace that's actually effective for everyone who has been regenerated. And uh, the Reformed position would state that in order for God's grace to be effectual, to be enticing, to be irresistible, you have to have a change in your nature. Uh, the the Reformed position is that there must be a regeneration of your heart prior to you wanting God or desiring God, or pursuing God. God has to change your heart of stone, which follows and and runs after idols, runs after ego and self-pride and self-satisfaction, lust. um, James, I believe, says, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Where's that, John? Again, it's in the Bible. I can't get my short epistles from uh, the Apostles. Book of Mormon? Straight. No, definitely not there. But essentially, in order for you to drop all those and look upon Christ as someone who is most worthy of your life, there has to be a radical change in your heart, which we call regeneration. And after that, he becomes irresistible. Mm-hmm. And the issue that... A majority of, and I think this is a big contention point in the Slava community, is that how dare God pull me into heaven against my will, right? Yeah, because it would say, then it's not a real choice. It's not loving that God forces you to do something because love is never coercive. It's never, you know, it never forces, you can't force your love on someone. Like, a, it's not a, because otherwise it would be like a shotgun wedding, some would say. What would you say to that? Yeah, let's discuss this. So, one, uh, it seems that God cannot be loving and good if he forces you to pursue him. That's that's the um, main, I guess, the, the main hierarchy of, of God's nature that people in the Slavic community would hold. 
Like God is at, at, at his highest is love. And love cannot coerce anyone to pursue you because it is perverted and is no longer pure love. It is no longer God's love. It is something wicked. It is something wrong. It is something um, totally different. And to that, there could be a multitude of responses. One, um, there is not a single expanse of God's love to all of humanity, right? Everyone experiences God's love in different ways because, like you mentioned prior to we started talking, same thing with God's grace. God doesn't just give God's his grace to everyone equally because if that was the case, either all of us would be in hell or all of us would be in heaven. So God can use his love in different ways toward people. And so, so God has... <clears throat> and this is like not unique, right? Because in the Old Testament, right, he had Israel... Yes, God. If you if you actually read the Old Testament, you will soon discover that God sheds His love very particularly, very specifically, and very distinctly to unique individuals. God chose only Abraham out of His tribe. God chose Isaac instead of Esau. God chose no, not, not sorry, my bad. Instead of Isaac was Hagar's son Ishmael. He didn't choose him. He chose Isaac. He didn't choose Jacob. I mean, he chose Jacob, not Esau, right? And Romans 9 is clear upon that. Before, while the twins were still still in the womb, before any of them did good or bad, God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. People say, well, you know, that that's a figurative speech. Nevertheless, that's, that's a difference in love. And the biggest example of that would be Christ actually loves his bride more uniquely than anyone outside of his bride. Just like a husband loves his wife differently than people outside of that communion, right? And so, God has deviations or differences in the way he presents his love and shows his love. Yeah, because if you say God can't show his love, like, if he has to show his love equally between each person, then you're actually limiting... You're actually limiting like what you see humans can show love to you know one another differently. Yeah, and God loves His bride more than He does loves the people in hell. The reason we know He does so is the result of the people in hell, mm-hmm. right? And so, so what would the other view be that the, the people are on he- are in hell because God couldn't like He loved everybody equally, but He couldn't save them. Yes. It always refers back to God having a limited limited capacity to actually save and influence the will of man, or anyone's will in that matter, and people choosing to disobey God and to distance God. And so it turns God into some kind of weak, incapable God who can't actually influence um, much of a person's heart. Uh, you know, well, he, he is unable to actually effectually change that heart of stone yeah. into a would heart it, of flesh wouldn't it not be yeah would it, it would be a god that's not really wise or loving because he didn't love he didn't he because right no matter what view you hold you know that god sees the future and so it wouldn't be very loving of him to make a world where he he makes certain people that he can't save yeah like ultimately it does boil down to the fact that there is a distinction between god God's love shed abroad to those whom he delivered and saved and those who he did not save. In other words, 
the potter does in fact have freedom over the clay that he uses. And, and Romans nine is very clear. Some some pieces of clay are turned into pots for honorable use, and some pieces of clay are turned into um, pots that are used for dishonorable use. God does that. And if you want to go to scripture more specifically. In John six thirty seven through forty, it reads, "All that the Father has given me will come to me." Look at that. The call of God is sure. In other words, all that the Father has given, they will come. There is a call that's irresistible, and whoever comes, I will never cast out. For I come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that is given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Could I bring up a common objection? Yeah. Common objection is a few chapters later, I think it's in John 12, I could look it up, where it talks about, uh, Jesus, you know, he's talking to the, talking to some Greeks or Gentiles. And he says that, like, uh, I will draw all people to myself. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could find it. But the objection would be, well, God draws all people. He it says in this verse that he draws all people. So, And I would respond with a rap lyric from Shailene. That's what some cats say, but it can't be that way because all who are drawn are raised in the last day. Meaning that in John chapter 10, sorry, chapter 6, verses 37 through 40, when Jesus speaks about those who are drawn by the Father, sorry, given by the Father, drawn to Christ, they are also raised in the last day. Meaning the same exact group of people, those individuals who are drawn, are raised in glory on the last day. Meaning God kept the very specific people who were drawn and if god draws all people in the same way and he raises them up in glory to heaven then there will be no people in hell mm. there you know we we become universalists if we interpret the scripture in that way yeah because that verse in john 6 that's that's a whole different context than in John 12, right? Yeah. Because it, literally in that same that same sentence in John 6, what is it, 37? Through 40. It says that I will draw I will draw uh I will draw them to myself and I will uh, and I will raise them up on the last day. Yeah, and it's the, a continual. And then in John 12, it talks about when I'm lifted up from the earth, John 12:32. I will draw all people to myself. And then it says, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And in fact, in that context, every single person who was in Jerusalem at that time was drawn to the cross. There was three crosses and Jesus was in the middle. It it literally says all of Jerusalem gathered around to see. Christ dying and that was true in the fact that people were drawn to the cross of Christ because he was an innocent man who was put to death and there was this intrigue behind his death and there was a mystical expectation of his resurrection because he said I will raise on the third day and so there's this expectation and there's this mystique around him yeah and also it also goes to say like what does all mean in this context 
Meaning, right? yeah, there were a lot of people who were drawn to the cross at the crucifixion of Christ. But specifically in this context, who is he talking to? It says, there's a subheading, and it says, some Greeks seek Jesus. It's like verse 20, like seven verses before, it says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who are from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And then Philip went up and told Andrew. Andrew Philip went and told Jesus. And then Jesus answered to them, and he starts speaking. And in the context, when he says the, that he's going to be glorified, he's talking to them how he's going to die. He talks about bearing fruit. And then he talks about, I'm going to draw all people to myself. Meaning not the, only the Greek, not only the Jews, but also the Greeks, also the yeah. Gentiles, all the people groups that were outside of the promised covenant that God gave to Israel. It was it was all people groups. And that, in fact, did happen when Pentecost occurred and all the Jews and, and the God-fearers who gathered in uh, Jerusalem heard in their native tongues the gospel proclaimed. And later on, the Gentiles being accepted into the church yeah. through um, the vision that Peter saw and as he went to preach to, oh, geez, what was his name? Nicodemus? No, no, no. Acts chapter nine, P- Peter sees, Peter sees the. You mean ten? Ten, yeah. Cornelius. Cornelius, there you go. He see he goes preaches in Cornelius. Yeah, house, the God fear. And then the Gentiles are accepted because there was a second Pentecost for the Gentiles, but this is again in the teeter totter of well, God's grace in fact can be resisted, and we see that every day because you preach the word of God and people reject it. Yeah, let's talk about that. And yeah, God's grace can be resisted. Because the only way God's grace becomes irresistible is if you have a regenerate heart, going back to that. And once you have the regenerate heart, God does, in fact, become the most valuable thing to you in your life. Because he is the most attractive. He is the most satisfying. His grace actually creates in you a desire and longing Mm. for righteousness, for his presence, for his truth, and for the Holy Spirit to guide and lead you through the scriptures and just daily in your life. And specifically in Romans chapter 8, the verses uh, that were before chapter 9, uh, it talks about the golden chain of redemption and it talks about the effectual call that you know is essentially describing the process by which salvation works. And it goes like this, for all who he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. That's chapter 8 of Romans, verse 3. And essentially, it's saying that those who are drawn to God are those who are elected. And and God the Father elects, he, he, he changes your heart, and then you are in fact regenerated. And so you're driven and, and you're longing for God. People would say, well... It still seems that God doesn't ask for my permission to be saved, and that's bad, right? They categorically view as God not asking for your permission and invading your will as malevolent, as as not good. Benevolent is good, malevolent is evil. Mm-hmm. And so they view it as a, a break in um, trust and a break in his love. And I think those people don't, have proper categories in the way they think. For example, um, police officers against the will of the criminal arrest the criminal for acts of uh, yeah. deviance or corruption or breaking the law. That's a good act. 
even though it invades the will of that criminal. I was talking to you about my three-year-old. I have to invade his will every single day, almost every single hour, because if he does, if I don't invade his will and correct his behavior, he's either going to kill himself, maim himself, hurt himself in some way, or do something that hurts someone else. Yeah, and then you could get put on child, like... You're a child. bad parent if you invade. Yeah, you could put uh, child protective services can come and take your child because you weren't enforcing your will on him. Yeah, and so I don't think those people have a proper view of what God actually does. He doesn't drag you kicking and screaming into heaven. He changes your heart and he makes you see the beauty, like taste and see. The Lord says, taste and see that I am good. And you can't taste and see because you're blind, you're deaf, and you're dead. Yeah. And until God raises you from the dead, you can't see God. You can't experience God. You can't so, can't believe in his word. So everybody in heaven won't be kicking and screaming to heaven. They they will come running to him like rejoicing. Rejoicing like, and those in hell will be Yeah, they will bow their knee to Jesus, but as Paul Washer <laughs> says, their legs will be broken and they will bow their knees. Because they will recognize who Christ really is. He is the ruler, the sovereign uh, creator of the universe yeah. who deserves all glory and praise. Because this goes back to like, not everybody, like we have the wrong, like basic understanding, like right away, like, like all of a sudden, a lot of people think that man has something like a little bit of righteousness in him, just like a little bit that just wants to follow after God that just wants to submit to him but then like Romans 8 7 says that that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God it doesn't want to submit to God's law nor can it yeah you can't those from the flesh cannot please God and what is something pleasing to God to repent isn't it to turn to him and once uh maybe we could discuss this that it's has to do with like when does someone have faith? Like, does it come before they're regenerated or after? Like, how do how does someone come and be saved? There, ha- yeah, the the order of salvation, like not necessarily the, the the order that occurs in the moment of your salvation, but the logical order that has to go in order um, in the way you're saved. Right? You are called. Well, first you're elected. Again, going back to the. Um, golden chain of redemption god predestines you he elects you yeah. and he calls you then he actually takes your heart and gives you a new heart and that heart produces saving faith at which point you recognize like you're already you you already have saving faith when you come to repentance you don't repent and then receive saving faith because the only way you can find yourself in need of God is if your heart is changed by him. And this this fundamentally makes people really upset and enraged because the highest value they a lot of people possess is the will of the person is at most the highest value that you can achieve. The will of man cannot be violated because that is in that that is the most important thing in, in um, essentially the Arminian philosophy, the will of man is supreme and it always, um, you know, runs into the will of God. Yeah. And so when, when our Arminian friends pray, Lord, save that individual, change his heart, change his heart. What are you praying for? 
God can't change that individual's heart. Or it's like... The, the will of man always trumps the will of God. Yeah. Because there's just way too many verses that kind of contradict, that go against, like, the pot and the potter distinction. Like, we are a pot and a potter. We talked about, like, uh, like a mom or a dad enforcing their will on a child to protect them or to clean them. Like, for example, Paul Washer talks about he was a dirty, uh, a dirty child living up on a farm. He would have so many dirt in every single crevice that uh, he would have to take a bath like every day. But one day he didn't want to. But his mom was like, what do you think you're doing? He's like, I'm going to go to sleep. No, you're not. And she forced him to go into that bath and to be clean, to be cleansed because it was the better for him. It was it was what it's what the older, more experienced parent wise knows what to do how much more wise is god like you can't compare a creator and a creature distinction like we can't even fathom yeah and so when uh, you put the value all your value on the will of man your ability to choose god you fundamentally take away everything that makes god 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 is the one being in this universe whose will cannot be thwarted he cannot be um, you know, thrown off the trail. He cannot have his plan ruined. He, in fact, creates a sovereign plan in which he decrees things to pass. And those things have to happen in order for him to remain to be God. Like, he is not God if he can't, in fact, make his will known and fulfill his will. Even though there are millions and billions now at this point of human beings who resist God's will, he will not be thwarted. And so you have to recognize, like you said, the value that the potter holds over the pots that he himself created. And he created some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. And that should make us realize that we cannot resist his will. Right? You, you Like, when... when Paul is going to persecute the church on the way to Damascus, I want to say. No, that's Paul from Damascus. No, road to Dam- the road to Damascus experience. Right? Yeah. Paul's going. He sees a bright light. What does what is, what is Jesus Christ, the Lord, say to Paul? Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It is difficult for you to go against me. And there is no sign of Paul, you know, asking for forgiveness, accepting the Lord, seeking the Lord in any way. At that moment, his heart is radically changed, and you reckon, and he, all his net, Paul's words are, "Lord, Lord, what would you have me do?" That's it. There was no contemplation or seeking after God. God radically changed Paul's heart. He was dead, and now he was resurrected to new life. And after that, Paul had pursued Christ to his very death. And so that is the view that we see. His call is in fact irrevocable. His call of grace cannot be resisted once he changes your heart. And that heart change is needed in order for you to recognize who he is. Yeah. So we come, we, our view is not that like God takes you, like forces you against your will to accept him, but instead that he changes your will. And that you want to accept him. Yeah. You desire him. Because your will is in bondage you're a slave to sin that's what jesus said 
And then you become and, a slave to righteousness. Yeah. And so either your will is in bondage to, I want to reject, keep on rejecting Christ, or we believe that he changes your will so that you want to repent. You hear the, through the means of the, of the preaching of the word of God, the gospel, it is the power of salvation to save, and faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And when you hear the word, God uses that, or he he uses that to cause you to come to him, to, to change. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, in fact, does cha- make you alive. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. And when you experience regeneration, the new birth, then you recognize your sinfulness. And so the Reformed soteriology or the theology of salvation and the Reformed view is that there must be a change of heart before repentance Mm -hmm. versus the Arminian view is you repent and then God changes your heart. And we believe that scripture is crystal clear on the fact that you cannot, you do not want to, you do not care for God, you hate, you despise him, you are at war with the Almighty up until the point where he takes your heart of flesh and gives you, sorry, takes your heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh. And it is a joyful experience to pursue God. And again, that's the difficulty with irresistible grace is because it was coined by the opposing side, they didn't paint it in a great light. But it is true. You know, God's grace is resisted and irresistible up to the point where he changes your heart. Yeah, so when God wants... You know, when God wants to change you, when he wants to save you, he will. I think, yeah. That When does that come into effect the, of like when we're in our sanctification? Because, right, our salvation had nothing to do with us. In the same way, the sanctification. But the same, at the same time, we still repented. Like God... Uh, changed our will so we wanted to repent and it's the, and ha, and in the same way does God change our desire so we want to keep on pursuing holiness yeah I mean the Holy Spirit is the critical role player in us desiring God he himself is God and so he creates a longing in us and yet we still strive we we have to use the means of grace to pray to seek God to fast to obey his word to resist sin, to flee temptation, all of that is a function of our will being changed and we actively have to participate in showing fruit of our, of our salvation, right? Jesus says, bear fruit with repentance. Or was that John? That was John. Uh, and he's essentially, you have to provide well, evidence of your changed heart. Yeah, and they're talking about they're, John John the Baptist. John the Baptist when he was baptizing, yeah. There has to be a provision of evidence. James talks about that, right? Works faith that works is dead. Not that you need faith to generate works or or vice versa, but faith is just not useful unless you have the evidence of works. There has to be an actual proof in like your your heart your heart faith is invisible it's not tangible there's nothing to grab there it's a it could be up and down it could be a feeling that wait you know comes in with a wave and goes away but if you have daily evidence of your works that show your faith then you have 
sanctification constantly in your heart and the Holy Spirit is regenerating and changing you and you're participating alongside with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You know, in Ezekiel 36, it, uh, verse 25, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from your all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone and from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Yeah, I am glad that God violated my will and he saved me. Because if he never violated my will, I would have gone to hell. That's that's the main point. Yeah, That is the emphasis. So, does... Is there any blame that we could put on on God? Like some people would say that it would put a lot of blame on God that he doesn't want to, or he, he doesn't change some hearts. Yeah, he does not. In fact, it is very true. God is responsible for not changing the hearts. He does not choose to. God has the freedom to do so, and it is not wrong of him because he clearly gives the due penalty for the things that all human beings deserve to those who don't get regeneration, right? Which is justly hell. If if you had sinned, the, the consequence or penalty for sin is death. So you can't argue and say, well, God, you have to, or it is unfair that you don't. Yeah, not every... The literal definition of mercy is the choice which God deploys in order to redeem someone. And he does not just redeem and say, your sin is wiped out. He pours out the punishment of that individual sin on his son, Jesus Christ. And so uh, I've, you know, I've, I've said this many times and I've heard it said many times that God would be perfectly loving and just to send the entire world to hell without ever sending Christ as a propitiation for our sin. And the fact that he did does not negate his fairness or his justice or his, or his mercy or his love. And in fact, on top of that, the reason all those people are going to hell, because they don't want to be dragged to heaven, right? The, the, the point is valid. God does not, in fact, drag, drag, drag you to heaven against your will. He won't do it. He will first change an individual's heart. And the choice to change someone's heart is his and his alone. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He is the creator of all things. And he is the potter and we are the clay. And as, as Paul says, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Why have you made me this way? Yeah. You know, not everybody's, not everybody's uh, experience is like Paul's. So some, it'd be interesting because some, some would say like, oh, Paul, Paul's uh, Damascus Road experience is very unique. You know, it's, yeah, God God might have violated his will there, but it's a very unique experience. Like, for the most part, most people come to a very slow, like, way to Christ, you know, like. It's gradual recognition and the knowledge of the word of God. But, but that whole time, it's. But don't be deceived. The point at which your heart is regenerated and you love God is the point in which God changes your heart and raises you from death to life. Prior to that, even even the call, the effectual call, is God working, right? He is cultivating 
the yeah. ground upon which he will plant the seed of the gospel and it will grow. And so it is all God's work. We, we clearly believe that we are, we are monergists, right? Mono meaning one, the work, not synergists working together. We, us and God don't work together to make us alive from us being dead in our sins and trespasses. We are dead and God himself re- regenerates by himself, chooses to save us. And after we are saved, we work with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. But again, God is the one who saves. We are dead in our sins. So what's the motivation once we're saved to keep on pursuing holiness? Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's love. It's actual desire to please God, right? It's the faith that is infused in us as a gift that continually perpetuates our hearts to long yeah. for him. I noticed like there's a relationship change when I became a Christian. Uh, when I would sin, there was a uh, a guilt, there was a shame, not a guilt and condemnation, t- like I'm going to hell, but a guilt and a shame condemnation that uh, of like I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. Of like before I was saved, like I would sin, I would feel a little bit sorry, but I wouldn't. Like, I had a different relationship with sin. Like, sin felt a lot, <laughs> a lot more pleasurable as not as a Christian. Yeah, sorrow or, or guilt that actually leads to repentance rather than sorrow or guilt for sin that is there for a while and then passes away and sears your conscience over time. There is a actual feeling of disappointment and a breaking of the fellowship that you once had with God when you sin as a Christian and the cultivation of um, a relationship with God is is always like the most desirable thing in a Christian's life.